couple of weeks ago, uh, Aaron, Lauren, and I were at the Emmaus Reformed Baptist Church for our uh, quarterly gathering of um, churches in our association, Southern California Association of Reformed Baptist Churches. They do not rule over us. They are like-minded people that we gather with. We have a gathering of pastors on one week every quarter, and then we meet with the churches of the area for a combined worship service in the evenings. And for our last association meet, uh, quarterly meeting, uh, Rich Barcelos was our speaker. And you may not know who Rich Barcelos is. He's one of our association pastors. But he's also a nationally known biblical scholar. When I was first, I guess not first, meeting my son-in-law, we were talking about our church, and my son-in-law knew we had a small church. And one week I said, um, Jim Renahan was speaking at our church, and he runs the uh, seminary that's now the Reformed, what is it? It used to be Institute of Reformed Baptist Studies. Now it's the, we've got the same initials, but it's Reformed Baptist Seminary. And he said, Jim Renahan was at your church speaking? And I said, yeah. Well, another time, I, you know, I mentioned that Rich Barcelos had just been up to our church speaking. And my, we were back in North Carolina at the time my son-in-law got up and he walks over to his bookshelf because he's been in seminary for Reformed Baptists before. And he reaches over and he brings out a book and he carries it over to me and he says, this Rich Barcelos? And I looked at it and I said, yeah, that Rich Barcelos. And he says, what was he doing speaking at your church? Well, we've had a lot of very good speakers in our church because for a time we were served by the Institute for Reformed Baptist Studies out of uh, Westminster Seminary, California. And every week we'd have a different pastoral candidate speaking here. So we got some very good teaching. Anyway, Rich Barcelos, I digressed. Now I'm out of time. No, never mind. Rich stood up and uh, he said, I stand here with an 18-page sermon. And I, I bet it was longer than 18 pages. But he said... He said, and it's on 1 Corinthians 15. And then he said, verse 4. And then he said, B. Okay. And yes, indeed, he had 18 pages on 1 Corinthians 15, verse 4, B. And yes, it was a very good sermon. Today's sermon is nominally on Acts 6, 8 through 15. Uh, let's read that right now. This is the English Standard Version. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilician Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders of this, and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth, 
we'll destroy this place and we'll change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. I read that for background. We're not covering that today. So, but I just wanted to know you, where, uh, you know where we're going. I could have one-upped Rich Barcelos and written this sermon on a single word in this passage, the name Stephen. But I chose to be modest and focused in on the first five words of verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace. We'll be looking at Stephen in depth for a few weeks. And we've seen in the last two weeks that he was one of the seven chosen by the apostles to be alms distributors to the Greek-speaking widows of the church. The men who were chosen for this ministry were to be of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. And in verse 8 here, Stephen is described as being full of grace in addition, which seems an apt summation of having good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and possessing wisdom. Now, you would think that with all these biblically attested attributes, Stephen would have a ministry as effective as, say, Paul would have, or any of the apostles. But just a short time after his calling to ministry, he would be dead, the first Christian martyr of the Christian church. And not just a martyr, but as one commentator said, the victim of a lynching, okay? He was not tried. He was not sentenced. At the end of his speaking, he would be bodily pulled out of the chamber, dragged out of the city, and stoned. How does this happen? How do do the unjust prevail over the righteous? Why do the wicked seem to profit at the detriment of the good. I was reading this morning, uh, because once again I was not done with the sermon this morning, and somebody was commenting that Christians seem to fall down on the side of attributing better motives to non-Christians than they do, frankly, to people within the church. And I have to admit that I have generally tried to take a nuanced look at those who are standing against us and against God. Um, And by nuanced, I mean not wanting to call them what they are. Because there are two kinds of people in the world, and this is not a joke, you know, where I name three. There are two kinds of people in the world, those that are held in the hands of God and those that are enslaved by the hands of Satan. There are no two others. If you are not in God's hands, you are under Satan's rule. Satan is described as the God of this world, which we'll get into later. But but why do the wicked seem to profit at the detriment of the good. This is a sentiment that could be ripped from today's headlines, but the recognition that the bad seem to prosper while the good suffer is thousands of years old. And it goes back, and I'll say it again, the 
people 4,000 years ago weren't less than we were. They weren't dumber. They had less technology. But if anything, being closer to creation, they were smarter than we were. Psalm 73 is called a psalm of Asap because I like to fill these things in. Asap, and I like this, was a worship leader appointed by David. And after I have railed against worship leaders in churches, uh, I like to see that Asap might have been the first worship leader in the temple. I've pointed out before that all the psalmists are considered to be prophets. Asaph wrote in Psalm 73, this is the second verse, I'll start there. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked for they have no pangs until death their bodies are fat and sleek they are not in trouble as others are they are not stricken like the rest of mankind and they say how can God know is there knowledge to the most high behold these are the wicked always at ease they increase in riches all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Lawfully they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them, and find no fault in them. I mean, that could be written today about, about the elites of the world looking at us people in flyover country. Truly, here and today, and 3,000 years ago, the wicked prosper, just as Asaph said. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble, as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. But, but why not? Why do the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? It's as if we don't belong here. It's as if it's as if we, this is not our home. You know? So you take a look at the, the nation of Israel. They have been beset. And I'm going to use the word, and I never use this word. You probably very seldom hear me talk about Satan or evil. Satan doesn't come up all that often in the scripture, and I preach the scripture. But why, after God chose Israel as their people and set up the old covenant with them. Why was evil forever enslaving them? They were allowed at first as guests in Egypt, only to be enslaved. After 500 years of slavery, they escaped Egypt 
And after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, entered the promised land, but that land is filled with worshippers of false gods. And wars and strife become a way of life. And a couple hundred years after coming into the land, a few hundred years, let's put it that way, they're conquered and deported by the Babylonians uh, to a land of idol worshippers, false god worshippers, uh, to the point that when they got deported and they deported all the, all the priests and all the top businessmen and all the leaders of the society and it had to be decided in Jerusalem whether or not they could actually worship God in Babylon. Then when they return, the land of Israel is poor. A lot of the rich didn't return. Then they're conquered by the Romans. And under Roman rule until Jerusalem uh, is destroyed 150 years later. But the wicked kept getting rich while God's people lived under tyrants. Or Christians. Uh, Christians live under a new covenant with God. Uh, he is written his law on our hearts. We are his priests, the priesthood of believers, and yet John the Baptist, paving the way for Christ in the wilderness, was executed on the whim of a young girl. Jesus, the Messiah himself, was illegally tried and lawlessly executed by a a corrupt council of the Jews. We've seen the apostles beaten within a a lash of their lives, though they had not been found guilty of anything. All of the apostles, save John, will be executed. Ordinary Christians will be persecuted to the death by the Romans, some crucified, some used as Nero's torches, some torn apart by wild animals for the entertainment of the elite. Bring it up to the modern day. I've told you before, I, my daughter, and because she follows them, I follow uh, the writings of uh, New Reign Covenant Church in uh, China. I believe it is a reformed congregation, as a matter of fact, because many of them are, uh, who are being persecuted by, uh, by the Chinese. Uh, their pastor has just been sentenced to another 10 years in prison for preaching the word. Christians in Muslim lands are killed legally, basically. African Christians are martyred by willing governments. And Christians, being hated here in the Western world, are told to keep our religion private, out of the public square, being called hate groups for daring to stand against beliefs that were considered outlandish, immoral, literally yesterday. I could probably come up with something new that we're not allowed to talk about that within the last month was considered outside the mainstream. So if there's a theme that unifies these groups and their persecution down these last 4,000 years, what would I say it was? Well, first of all, I would say it's evil. But 
if you watched the drama of last week, and last week on Sunday when I spoke to you all, I had no idea on Monday that something momentous would happen when that draft of the Supreme Court was leaked. Now, it's not a reversal of the law. It's not changing Roe versus Wade. It's a possible a possible change to it, but it, that's not what it was. But when that happened, I don't know if you watched the hysterical reaction of the people who were for abortion, but at prayer night on Thursday night, I said, how can people want to kill babies that bad? And that, that's it. It might be that they want to kill babies more than I want them to stay alive. I mean, and I want them to stay alive. Okay? Uh, it's been an ongoing thing of mine since I basically started having babies of my own. How can they want to kill babies that bad? They're babies. Okay? They can't do anything. They're the epitome of innocence. And I say that knowing about original sin and the fall of the sin of Adam falling on all mankind. Babies are under that judgment, but they haven't done anything. And it's not like we don't understand in the year 2022 about biology or how reproduction gets done. It's not like you can't protect yourself. There is just about no reason for a pregnancy if you're dead set against it. There are no shortages of infertile couples waiting to adopt. There is literally no reason for abortion to exist. And I know that people will say, well, what about the life of the mother? Or in the case of rape and incest. So I will give you the numbers. Abortions due to rape are 1%. 1 in 100. Abortions due to incest are 1 in 200. Half a percent. And for the life of the mother is a quarter of a percent. 1 in 400. That is 1.75% of the abortions are for those reasons. So I want to sit here and say to the people who are supporting abortion, what about the other 98 and a quarter percent? What are you going to tell me about that? But no, they want to distract you and me from looking at that 98 percent. So what is the reason for this hysteria? It is about religion, but not ours. There is a religion that wants to sacrifice children. There is a religion older than Christianity, older than Judaism, that's main ritual is child sacrifice. When the Israelites were about to cross into the land of Canaan, God instructed them to utterly destroy all those who practice child sacrifice. 
It was a commandment. And that will get thrown back in your face every time you say, I'm pro-life. Well, what about God destroying the cultures of Canaan? Correct? They will come back at you and say, your God allowed the killing of children, allowed the killing of people. Well, God did not want... Do you think he, he knew the Jews really well? He did not want them moving into a land with other religions because they would intermarry and fall away from the worship of the one true God. And it's going to sound trite. I'm going to say Molech, okay? He's been in the news lately. How often is Molech in the news lately? I heard of Molech all week long. So pardon me, mentioning Moloch, but he was typical of the gods, and that's a small g of those religions. One might sacrifice one's eldest son to Moloch, and his after he was burnt as a sacrifice, his ashes would be gathered up in a jar and built into the foundation of the house that you're going to live in. It was to bring you good luck. It was to usher you into the presence of Moloch when you died. And I'm here to tell you, it might have done that. Okay? Children were thus sacrificed for the well-being of the family. Does that sound familiar in today's terms? What's the most usual reason people are giving for abortion? It will be a hardship. I don't have time for it. I have other children. In Leviticus 22 through 5, God said, Say to the people of Israel, Any one of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel who gives any of his children to Molech shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I myself will set my face against that man and will cut him off from among his people because he has given one of his children to Molech to make my sanctuary unclean and to profane my holy name. And if the people of the land uh, do it all, close their eyes to that man when he gives one of his children to Molech and do not put him to death, then I will set my face against that man and against his clan and will cut them off from among their people, him and all who follow him in whoring after Molech. But the Israelites did not do as God commanded. They did not kill all those who sacrificed children. They did not pull down the high places, which is where the sacrifices were performed. Here's what they did instead. We know Solomon. Solomon was David's son. God let Solomon build the temple instead of David because David was a man of war. And Solomon, when he was becoming king, prayed that he would be given wisdom. And God gave him wisdom. But I want you to know this. In 1 Kings 11.7 it says, Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Moab, Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountains east of Jerusalem. Solomon built high places. Do you know what the, what the mountains east of Jerusalem are? 
You know the name. It's the Mount of Olives. Okay? That's where Solomon built the high places for Molech. Others in David's line. And remember when I say David's line, I'm saying Jesus' line. Other in David's line followed suit. King Ahaz, who is nobody's idea of a good king in 2 Kings uh, 16.3, it says, King Ahaz even burned his son as an offering according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. King Ahaz sacrificed his son. And King Manasseh even built high places in the temple itself. Okay? 2 Kings 21, 5 through 6. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his son as an offering in the temple. And used fortune telling and omens and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil. Now this this is a little bit of a downplaying. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Moloch is not a god. Neither is Chemosh. We know this, so who is behind this false worship? From the year 2000 BC to the year 2000 AD and past. That would be the one who Paul was talking about in 2 Corinthians 4.4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The God of this world, as we know, is Satan. And like I say, I don't often preach on Satan. But truly, if you do not see that killing babies by fire, like to Moloch, or exposure by the Romans, or in the mother's womb by abortion today, then truly Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. As we draw to a close today, let's take a quick look at how child sacrifice has been dealt with through history. If you're like me, you might think that all the modern Christian church has done has been to talk about, to tut-tut, the evil that is in the land. But wiser men than me, and they, they're, they're all over the place, have said that you can't end abortion by fiat. You can't end it by violence. That you have to change the hearts and the minds of everyday Americans. And you know, that seemed awful slow. I was 20 when, uh, when Roe versus Wade came down. And I wasn't for it then. But being 20, I was not against, as against it because I was not as, as learned, which is a dumb phrase, as wise, which is a, also a foolish phrase. I know more than I knew then. Let's put it that way. 
But you know what? If the people change, they said, the law will follow. And I'm here to tell you that if Roe versus Wade is struck down, it will not be because of the courage of a majority of the justices on the Supreme Court. That's not what's going on here. They might have wanted the change, but they could not even begin the change if the majority of the Americans weren't already against abortion. And despite what, and I've heard it, I have heard it all weekend long if I was on a news channel, that 70% of the Americans are against a change in Roe versus Wade, and I'm here to tell you that's not true. That is a talking point by those who want to leave it. But if the people had not changed, the judges would not be talking about abandoning that decision. All the talk, all the protests, all the alternatives set up by caring Christians will have brought about the change that would not have been possible by violent means. Now, a violent end to Roe versus Wade would only beget more violence from the other side, and truthfully, violence from that side is not something that is out of the question even yet. But the news of last week is something that, you know, I had despaired of seeing in my lifetime, okay? What's the Bible say? It says that the years of man are 70 years. Well, and by strength, maybe 80. Well, I've got a birthday next week. And I'll be within a year of my lifetime span. And so truly, I did not think that I would be living to see these days. Now, for the Christians living 2,000 years ago in the Roman Empire... They were particularly powerless, okay? They were more powerless than we were with Roe versus Wade. They were despised by the Romans. They were thought to be, as I pointed out before, antisocial because they would not worship Roman gods. That would be the polite thing to do, is to worship the Roman gods. And they were not polite enough, the Christians, to do that. They were said to be a free love cult because they said that we were to love one another. Christians truly did not fit into their society. And yet for 250 years, Christians set up charities. They took care of the poor and the sick. And even more revolutionary, they scoured the dumps and the dung heaps looking for the babies who were left to die of exposure by the Romans. And doing so, they set up the first charities. And they did this year after year. For 250 years, even while facing terrific, horrific is what I actually wrote, persecution, either one works, putting others before themselves until... The entire Roman Empire agreed with them. 2,000 years ago, the Roman Christians changed the hearts and minds of a satanic empire. What happened with the Hebrews and Canaan 3,000 years ago? 
Uh, we see that Solomon had given into satanic practices. Ahaz burned his son alive. King Manasseh sacrificed his son in the temple on a high place. What came of all that? Well, Manasseh's grandson, Josiah, came to the throne of Israel. Now, he was eight when he came to the throne of Israel. And he reigned for 31 years. He was a good king. He was considered the best king after David. You would not expect much of a king at that age. You would have thought that he must be under the control of advisors. But in 2 Kings 22, we see Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years. I just said that. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of David his father and did not turn aside to the right or to the left. In his 18th year, it says, now, I'd like to tell you what year that was. It says in Josiah's 18th year. It doesn't say in the reign of Josiah. So, if I add 18 to 8, I, uh, I, no, if I say that, oh uh, yes, if I add 18 to 8 for his uh, kingly reign, he would have been 26 at this time, or if it's just straight that it was in his 18th year, he was 18. It says that he sent workmen to restore the temple. And I want you to listen closely to this because I've walked you through Solomon and Ahaz and Manasseh. But he sent workmen to restore the temple. Okay, the temple is 300 years old by this point. We're talking the late 600s BC. So, okay, we need to restore the temple. That doesn't surprise me. But in doing so... Hilkiah, the high priest, now I want you to keep this in mind, Hilkiah, the high priest, discovered the lost book of the law. He discovered the lost Torah. Now, considering that that was all of Jewish law, what was the high priest actually a high priest of? What was he doing? The practice of Judaism effectively had stopped. They did not have the law. They didn't know what it was. So the Torah was brought to Josiah and read to him. He had never heard it. They don't know how long the book was lost. I'm going to think, well, as some others do, that it's from the time of Solomon. If Solomon had a high priest read the book of the law, would he have done what he did? Would Manasseh? Would Ahaz? 2 Kings 22 verse 11 says, when the, when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest and Ahikam, Ahikam the son of Shaphan and Achor the son of Micaiah. I'm going to give up on those names. Go inquire of the Lord. These are all priests. Go inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us 
Because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. So this young king says, we need to find out what's going on here. All you priests, go inquire of the Lord what's going on. So, they all went to Huldah the prophetess. Okay, and she said to them, I'm cutting to the chase here because I had to go back through all those names again. I think that anytime I have to say a Hebrew name, I'm going to call Robin and say, Robin, give me the name because he cares enough to figure out what the pronunciation is. But they went to this priestess and she said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, tell the man who sent you to me, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon all its inhabitants. All the words of the book, all the words of the book that the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore my wrath will be kindled against this place and it will not be quenched. But to the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was penitent, and you humbled yourself before the Lord, when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and curse, and you have torn your clothes and wept before me, I have also heard you, declares the Lord, Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see the disaster that I will bring upon this place. And they brought back the word to the king. Well, that's not how Hollywood would write the story. The king was penitent. He brought his men before the Lord. And the Lord says, I'll take you to your grave before this happens. And he died at 39. So what did Josiah do about the abomination that had taken place in Israel? Okay. Well, King Josiah was a man of action. And what I have told you about what the various kings after Solomon did in Israel was an understatement because we're given the story here in 2 Kings with Josiah. And the king commanded Hilkiah the high priest and the priests of the second order and the keepers of the threshold to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels made for Baal, for Asherah, and for all the host of heaven. That doesn't mean God the Holy Spirit and the Word either. It means the gods that they had constructed. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. And he deposed the priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to make offerings in the high places at the cities of Judah and around Jerusalem. So, not just Jerusalem. They're making sacrifices all throughout the country. He deposed them. He brought out of the Asherah, uh, out of the 
Asherah from the house of the Lord outside Jerusalem to the brook Kidron and burned it at the brook and beat it to dust and cast the dust of it upon the graves of the common people. He broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes who were in the house of the Lord where the women wove hangings from the Asherah. He brought all the priests out of the cities of Judah and defiled the high places where the priests had made offerings from Geba to Beersheba. He broke down the high places of the gates that were at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city, which were on ones left at the gate of the city. He defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no one might burn his son or daughter there as an offering to Molech. He removed the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun at the entrance to the house of the Lord. I could go on, but I'm not. Read it yourself. It goes on and on. While doing the research for this sermon, I was briefly on a forum. And this is the end of the sermon. <laughs> I'm going to let you know. Briefly on a forum where someone said, I can't find abortion in the Bible. I can't find the killing of children in the Bible. Um, why do you say God is against it? Now, anytime somebody says that to you and you read it on the internet, they're not a Christian. They haven't read the Bible. Trust me. Maybe they did a word search. They have not tried to see what the Word of God really says, honestly. Because here's Deuteronomy 30, 15, 20. I talked to you about entering Canaan. But in Deuteronomy 30, 15 through 20, God says, See, I have set before you today, and he set before two choices. He gave you two choices, one hand to the other hand. I set before you life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in His ways and by keeping His commandments and His statutes and His rules, then you shall live and multiply And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away, and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. For any unclear, unchild sacrifice, God says, choose life.